Hello, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing very well. Hey, have you ever been fat shamed? Ever been tempted to fat shame someone else? Well, we had somebody who was calling in about this sort of question or issue of fat shaming and body image and weight and obesity and health and a really, really great meaty discussion ensued about these topics, which I hope you will find illuminating. And I talked about some of my, obviously, outside the profession views on how some of this stuff developed and where this obesity epidemic uh, originates and how it's sort of spreading. So I hope you'll find that interesting. The second caller has been in a long-term relationship with a woman who goes out and parties when she's on vacation, out all night at dance clubs and so on, and he finds himself racked or consumed with jealousy. And we talked about maybe some ways in which she may be responsible for that, ways in which they could communicate that might diminish that. So, you know, if you've been plagued by jealousy or know someone who has, I think you'll find that very interesting and helpful. And the third caller felt that he was composed of star stuff, of, of matter that had been produced by stars and... um what does it mean to have infinity within you? And, uh, and it sounds a bit woo-woo, but it actually got to a very productive place about, about creativity and human potentiality. So that was a bit of a different call, but I really, really enjoyed it, and I hope that you will as well. So please, please don't forget to go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out in the show. You can, of course, follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Use the affiliate link fdrurl.com slash Amazon and fdrpodcast.com to share the show. And here we go. All right, up first today we have Adam. Adam wrote into the show and said, A new facet has been added to the hierarchy of oppression over the last few years, and I find it especially evil. It's gone by several names, including body acceptance slash positivity and, quote, health at any size. But when someone starts spouting the same horrible talking points to justify a gluttonous lifestyle, it's still largely called out as fat acceptance. As someone well along the way to improving my life by prioritizing fitness, it goes without saying that a large majority of claims in this camp of the thought about health are complete hokum. But it's even more frustrating as I see it from the perspective of a caregiver and CNA. It's a drain, not only on financial and physical resources, but on the bodies of caregivers and family members that take care upon themselves. With more strains than I can count over my years of service, it's simple math that injuries rise in probability with the weight of patients. It's a story I've seen played out time and time again when good men and women are forced out of commission from physical injuries. My question is, what are some of the darker elements and outcomes you foresee in the psyche of people that buy into this? What approach would you take to encourage healthy decisions in people that still have hope and haven't bought into or been exposed to this idea? And also, out of general curiosity, what are your favorite forms of exercise? That's from Adam. All right, Adam, how you doing? Doing pretty good. Yourself? Uh, I'm well, thank you. I'm well. Um, it's a great question, and there are, of course, lots of people, I dare say, chewing their way through this challenging problem to try and figure out what the hell is going on as far as uh, obesity rates, obesity rates in the West, which are, you know, fairly fairly brutal these days, right? Absolutely. Now, is this, is this something you, you said you were a CNA? Well, I'm still a CNA and I've actually started. Oh, what, no, what is that? A certified nurse assistant. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Basically just, we do all the dirty stuff that uh, nurses complained about needing to do until, until things got a little bit more, a little bit more 
you know, crunched down. So we can't pass meds, but we change all the briefs and whatnot. Right. Got it. Have you noticed something uh, in your career that is changing? Because, you know, the statistics are one thing, but your sort of experience is another. Well, obviously, it's, it's going to be a, a little bit of a while until the millennial generation that uh, ha- is seeing uh, the real rise sees a nursing home. But um, I am seeing like a uh, I think it is starting to be a little bit of a, a surge from the baby boomers, which have struggled with it a little bit more than the generation before as well. And uh, there, there is a, a, a larger likelihood of seeing more obese people in general and in any giving in any giving nursing home or care center or general care facility. Absolutely. Right. Right. Now, um, this is um, U.S. stuff. This. Uh is um, from 2012, so it's a couple of years old, but uh, it gives um, uh, it gives some idea of the problem, which is, dare I say, big. <laughs> um, I think it's fair to call it, and a lot of people have called it, and remember, I'm no nutritionist or any, <laughs> no doctor, it's just my opinion. It's called an epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, 35.7% of adults and almost 17% of children aged 2 to 19 are obese. Mm-hmm. And... Building uh, on sort of the trends, looking forward, state-by-state data from the CDC project obesity rates. In every state, that rate will reach at least 44% by 2030. Yeah. 44% oh, man. of adults. Um, and, and in 13 states, that number would exceed 60%. Mm-hmm. And obesity say what we like uh it it raises this is from reuters it raises the risk of numerous diseases from type 2 diabetes that's the more lifestyle oriented one to endometrial cancer more sick people and higher medical costs in the future absolutely and um so 1.9 million new cases of diabetes a year recently uh, almost 8 million new cases in the future 6.8 6.8 million new cases of chronic heart disease and stroke compared to 1.3 million new cases a year now. It, um, it adds $66 billion in annual obesity-related medical costs over and above today's, or 2012's, $147 billion, making a grand total of $210 billion. Total U.S. healthcare spending was estimated at $2.7 trillion. So, you know, close to or in, in the realm of 10% of healthcare spending coming from obesity. And uh, what's amazing to that is uh, there was another projection, uh, American Journal of Preventive Medicine, by 2030, 42% of US adults could be obese, adding more than half a trillion dollars to healthcare costs over that period, $550 billion. And um, it's huge. So from 1980, right, um, I guess when I was a, a kid, uh, when was I? In 1980, I was 14. Obesity rates among U.S. adults have more than doubled from the 15% of 1980. In that same time, they've more than tripled among children. And uh, that, is some, that is some hairy stuff. Um, there's a correlation with education and income. About a third of adults without a high school diploma were obese, compared with about one-fifth of those who graduated from college or technical college. One-third of adults who earn less than 15000 a year are obese. One quarter of those who earn 50000 a year or more are obese. And 
you know, they say this and I, you know, tell, tell me what you think, Adam. But the, some people say, well, you know, calorie dense foods are cheap, fewer playgrounds, sidewalks and so on. I don't know. It, you know, a banana is not really expensive. Absolutely and, not. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's, I, I don't find it that expensive to eat in a healthy way. You know, it's, it's the stuff that is in the middle of the food aisle. You know, the, the Count Chocula cereal candy bars and, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. That, that stuff is expensive. If you look at that, I remember my roommate in college pointing out that some of those cereals are more expensive than chocolate per, per gram. Absolutely. And I don't, you know, you, you're around the outside, you're getting your fruit, you're getting your vegetables, uh, you, you're home cooking your meals. Uh, I, you know, I don't think it's uh, that expensive. So I'm not sure about that. Uh, I would say, if I had to sort of guess that if there's an IQ correlation, uh, I would assume that the lower the IQ in general, the higher the obesity rate, um, all other things being equal, simply because um, the higher IQ tends to look more over the horizon of the future and figure out long-term consequences and so on. So it is, um, it is a big, uh, it is a big deal. It is an ever-increasing deal, and of course, it is a very controversial deal. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I've seen some statistics as well. It's uh, people used to poke fun at the at the U.S. about it, but. UK and Australia have definitely started ca catching up with us in the, in the same demographics and, and uh, obesity problems as well. So it's starting, I, th I think it's starting to become just a first world in general problem as well. Yeah. And it is, of course, different by race. Again, you know, it's always tempting to blend all of this stuff in together, but to be, to be accurate, right, we have to uh, point out, and this is from 2010, uh, obesity rate for Caucasian adults, 26.8%. Uh, 20, uh, uh, and um, for adults, Caucasian women, uh, 24.5. For black adults, uh, was no, so 26.8 um, for ca Caucasian adults, uh, 36.9 for black adults. Um, for adult Caucasian women, 24.5. For adult black women, the rate of obesity was 41.2% in uh, 2010. Uh, American Indian or Alaska Native adults in the U.S. was almost 40%. Wow. Uh, and um, I'm I'm going to guess whether you think Asian adults higher or lower. Most likely lower. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is correct. So the obesity rates for Asian adults in the U.S. in 2010 was 11.6%. Compare that to almost 40% for the uh, Alaska natives. Um, mm -hmm. Hispanic or Latino, 31.9% for adults as a whole. For men, 30.7% for Hispanic or Latino women, 33.1%, uh, and um, it, is, uh, it is not uh, equal, uh, and, uh, you know, the causes for that, I would, you know, uh, I'll leave you to all uh, mull that over, but uh, I, I think that there are some reasons that people don't really like to talk about, but I did want to know what your thoughts were on why, oh, why it's going this way. Well, I think uh, as far as the, the narrative and advancement of the fat acceptance movement, it, the, 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 the left has, has clearly prioritized more than anything else appealing to as many different demographics that they think they can sell this victimhood narrative to as possible. And if you have people who have struggled lifelong and 
really don't feel out of control about their life and their eating habits because uh, it's very difficult. It is very difficult starting to get those to, to develop good health habits and getting rid of bad. Uh, you know, if, if you if you give them the option to, you know, eat their way into disability and, and, and welfare, then and, mm. and on top of that, feel, you know, as if they have some type of uh, I don't, not necessarily moral high ground, but justification for for uh, moral or, or philosophical justification for why they should feel appreciated despite the despite uh, taking resources or, or requiring labor and care for them, then people, people, there's always going to be a, a percentage of those people that will just eat that up. Unfortunately. Absolutely. Right. Right. Um, the obesity is a contributing factor. And this is a huge range between hundred and 400,000 deaths in the U S each year. And this includes this increased morbidity in car accidents. Um, 117 billion indirect, uh, and indirect costs like did medical treatment and absenteeism, loss of future earnings due to premature death, and so on. So it's more expensive in America. Obesity is more expensive than smoking or problem drinking. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. it's a big deal. And of course, uh, Medicare and Medicaid programs bear about half the additional costs. Um, high obesity rates, a major contributor to America's relatively low life expectancy relative to other high-income countries. And uh, obesity may lead to a halt in the rise of life expectancy observed in the 19th and 20th centuries. And this, yeah, go ahead. This is this is just where it gets really insane uh, for me because, like, the, the the one of the major platforms. I mean, the the initial talking points of fat acceptance aren't necessarily bad ones. They're initially just a discussion of of negative reinforcement versus positive reinforcement, which I generally agree with. You, you catch more flies with honey than salt, but they're crazier ones. Like I said, this health at any size, they've literally tried to put forward that you can still be fat and fundamentally you're going to have the same quality of life and nobody and anybody that tells you otherwise is shaming you because naturally they, they change the definition of shame. So they completely want uh, people that are really invested into this narrative are 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 trying to just dismiss everything that any health organization would would give them as as just basic modus operandi. It's it's, uh, it's, it's the cringe is real. Now I've heard, and you know, this is obviously a very complicated subject. So you know, please everyone give us feedback on on this conversation. It's a very important subject, of course, uh, but I've heard that uh, the obesity uh, epidemic is not quite as much to do with additional calories as it is to do with increasing sedentary lifestyles. Um, Long periods of physical inactivity raise your risk, this is from WebMD, raise your risk of developing heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and obesity. In January 2010, British experts linked prolonged periods of sitting to a greater likelihood of disease. And that same month, Australian researchers reported that each hour spent watching TV is linked to an 18% increase in the risk of dying from cardiovascular disease, perhaps because that time is spent sitting down. And, um, you know, we're, we're designed to be in motion. We're designed to be um, moving and, and getting around. And, of course, you know, people, uh, they, they, they sit in their cars, they drive to work. They sit at their desks, uh, and then they go down and they sit at the, 
cafeteria or they sit uh, at, at a lunch counter or they sit in a food court for lunch. They go back and they sit in the afternoon and then they sit when they're driving home and then they um, sit in front of the TV. They sit for dinner and then they sit in front of the TV. Basically, it's a lot of sitting. Oh, yeah. And that has um, – that I think has changed um, qu- quite a bit. And I think there's a lot more that that is going on in society as a whole but um yeah i mean this is one of the reasons why i stand while doing my show um i you know i, I i've seen a picture of rush limbaugh <laughs> i can i can see what goes down or what goes wide and uh, yeah i just i didn't want to be middle-aged pear-shaped dad body guy and um so it is uh it is a big uh, problem i've i've changed what i do in light of this um i mean i remember when i had cancer couple of years ago had lymphoma and uh, I remember saying as they were wiring me up uh, for um, for my treatments I remember saying this is this is so strange because I've been I, I exercise I eat well and I'm a good weight and uh, it just it feels wrong and they said well you know that's probably why you're going to get better and that gave me some <laughs> some comfort as far as that went. You know, I mean, the little things that people say, these little bricks that can get you to a better a better place. So what I do now is, you know, I, I walk as much as I can. Um, I will walk and do shows. I will stand and do shows. Standing is not fantastic, but it's certainly better than sitting. And uh, when I write, I put uh, a voice dictation software and I walk on a treadmill uh, with a computer propped up. And I just will try and do everything that I can to to stay in motion and of course that's one of the benefits of uh being a father to a very active child is that you you're getting some moving in you're getting some yeah. moving in except for fishing which we'll talk about perhaps later uh, later in the show so so i think a lot has been going on and i'm gonna run through a couple of them i've, I've talked about them here and there in the show but i'll i'll try and keep it compressed adam and uh, i'll tell you what I think, in my sort of subjective opinion, is is going on in a lot of the West, and and you can tell me what what you think. Great. So, um, uh, number one is that women have left the home, and that has huge effects on just about everything in society. It's one of these giant, almost silent neutron bombs that went off in society. The effects of which we're still trying to parse out and unravel. So, when women left the home to to go and work in the 60s and, and sort of forward from there. Two major things happened, I think. Uh, number one, neighborhoods collapsed. There, there's no neighborhoods anymore. And that has a huge effect on children's activities. And number two, uh, processed food replaced home-cooked food because time. Mm. I mean, who's got time, right? Now, the, the collapse of the neighborhood was pretty it's pretty significant in the past when women stayed home and there were at least largely culturally homogenous neighborhoods like the Italians lived with the Italians the Polish people lived with the Polish and so on then everybody kind of knew each other as uh, they, they all you know had coffee in the morning they'd lean over their backyard fences and they would have have chats and they all knew each other and they all had the same standards here's how you behave here's how you punish here's how you reprimand so they're all comfortable disciplining each other's children and what that does is it creates this wonderful biosphere of culture and safety and and security and knowledge of your neighbors that I think was largely responsible for what a lot of people would find incomprehensible now, which is just chew your kids out when they get home from school and tell them to come home when the street lamps come on. Or in my case, in my case, I had a big old, my mom had this big bell, (laughs) lean out the window, ging, ging, it's time for coming for dinner, right? 
But this idea that your kids would just go, roam, do do your thing, go out and, and so on, uh, that's I think that's kind of incomprehensible for a lot of people now. And I think one of the – this is not a blame, right? That's not good or bad that women went to work as far as this goes. But I think there's causality without necessarily blame in this. So women go to work. Neighborhoods dissolve. Multiculturalism, as we've talked about before, the studies uh, – you can check out Robert Putnam's studies on this uh, – are fairly clear. Loss of social trust, loss of social cohesion, uh, loss of um, uh, outdoor playtime for, for children. And um, so I think what's happened is um, – Neighborhoods have vanished, and and with that vanishing has vanished a sort of safe, secure, collective area where children can play. And that this had more effects on obesity, I think, than many other factors, and it has a huge effect on the development of empathy. Uh, uh, unstructured play in nature or unstructured play, not in a, a palladium or whatever, or Chuck E. Cheese or even necessarily a playground, but just go out and play, kids have to figure out how to negotiate, they have to figure out who's going to play what, who's going to be it, what games they're going to play, and um, they have to figure out how to negotiate with different levels of ability and different heights and genders. There's a lot of negotiation. The whole point of play, I think, is just to help kids learn how to negotiate, and that doesn't happen when you take your kids to a structured area uh, with, uh, you know, and this is, I remember a friend of mine telling me this years ago. He was a father long before I was, and he said, you know, when I was a kid, you just, you didn't need any money. You'd Maybe you'd take, you know, 25 cents to get an ice cream oh, back in the day. And <laughs> yeah. you, you would just, you'd go out and play and then you'd come home and you hadn't spent any money. He said, now with my kids, everywhere I have to go, I've got to bring 40 bucks. I got to drive <laughs> them there. I got to bring 40 bucks. I bring 20 and then, you know, 15 minutes in, they're out of money. So everywhere I go, I got to drive them there. I got to pay 40 bucks and then I got to drive them home and I'm standing there bored. <laughs> Right. And that's not how it used to be. When you had a neighborhood, then kids could go out and you'd be. Have you ever read? Uh, I don't know if they still do this these days um, uh, to kill a mockingbird. Oh, absolutely. OK. So you yeah. remember um, I won't get into the whole story, um, but you remember that uh, there was. One house on the street with a scary, scary guy in it. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember his name? It's a great name. You know, I can't remember his name. All I'm remembering is that that they hid the 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 little trinkets and whatnot in the tree, like right in front of his 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 yeah, house, yeah. if I'm recalling the plot correctly. But I can't remember his name. It was a very young Robert Duvall of all people who played oh. Boo Radley. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Boo Radley, what a great name for like the weird guy in the neighborhood. <laughs> now, what was interesting, of course, is that. You could, uh, because there was cultural homogeneity in the neighborhood, you could say to your kids, go play anywhere you want, but don't go near Boo Radley's house, right? Yeah. And there was no like, oh, that's racist or whatever, right? So you you knew who was safe, you knew who wasn't, and there was no problem steering kids away from the less safe areas. So that, I think, has happened where outdoors have become much less appealing, much less appealing to be outdoors now. And it's one of these things, you know, the network effect, like if you you and me are the only people who have phones, they're not that valuable, but the more people who have phones, the more valuable they become. Right. Which is why, I don't know, alternative internet has never really taken off. But um, what I think is important is that the fewer kids who are out there playing, the less valuable it is to go out and play. 
You know, if, if there's one kid in one block goes out and then another kid on another block goes out, maybe they can find each other, but there's not going to be that much. To, but if there's 10 kids on each block out playing, then you can go out and find a game right away. You yeah. don't have if, to have the all, right timing. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And, if, and conversely now today, if, if you have all the kids on the iPad and they happen to just peek outside for a second to see the one kid who happens to like hopscotch, he just looks like a weirdo now, now that you think about it. <laughs> well, now he looks lonely. Like why, right? why aren't you playing Minecraft? <laughs> right. We, we can meet virtually. Right, because kids, you know, want to shy away from deviant behavior almost always, right? Kids are, are natural conformists, and there's nothing wrong with that in particular. It's just natural to, you know, tribal evolution. And so, if, the, if you know, if, if, if there's one kid staying home and all the other kids are out there, then the one kid who's staying home is weird. But as you point out, if there's one kid out there, kicking the ball against the wall and everyone else is inside on their tablets or computers and that kid looks like, well, what are you, what are you doing? Freak, <laughs> freak, <laughs> right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, so very, very briefly, the, the outside has become less appealing for kids and that's, that's where you move, right? That's where you do your moving. Now, mm -hmm. at the same time, as, as outdoors, and I think there's some coincidental ratio here, but as the outdoors has become less appealing for children, the indoors has become a whole lot more appealing, right? Because you've got big That's screen fair. TVs, you've got PS4s, you've got uh, Nintendos, you've got tablets, you've got dance, dance, revolution, evolution, party brain head with music. I think that's <laughs> the original title in Japanese. Uh, and so <laughs> you have, and you have movies. I mean, the, watching a movie, I when I was a kid, uh, you know, the entire country of England would shut down for James Bond night twice a year. The whole, <laughs> you'd watch it on your little 12 inch black and white TV that every now and then there'd be the elevator rollover of the picture and you couldn't turn it up too bright. Otherwise it'd get all ripply along the top. I mean, it really was, uh, you know, if you can imagine watching Jurassic Park play itself out in claymation on a postage stamp, that was kind of what we did for, for movie <laughs> entertainment. Right. And, um, so yeah, as outdoors have become less appealing, indoors have become vastly more appealing and uh the hypnotism of technology is enormous and considerable uh, i was at a coffee shop the other day and um except for one group in the back every single person whether they were sitting alone or together was phone they had phone face right yeah phone face and and golem phone back too uh my <laughs> Yeah, that's. I think I have seen some type of uh, headline or or, or news uh, news piece on on spinal not spinal injuries but spinal changes happening because of these darn phones. Mm. Well, they are um, they are tempting. Uh, they are tempting. It's sure you know for a lot of people, it sure beats sitting alone with the thoughts you're not having. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, so so that's I think the the two things have co-joined there, which I think has reduced activity enormously. Now. Uh, reducing activity isn't, I think, all, all the story, of course. I think that you also have to increase caloric intake and certainly, I would assume, negative caloric inta intake. And so when women left the home, um, you had to switch to more processed foods. I remember, the, in, I, I remember the introduction of TV dinners, a TV dinner on a TV tray designed. You put them in the oven, a hungry man, you put them in the oven and, and it's just like you're on an airplane. <laughs> But you're not. You might as well, and, might as well just cardboard. <laughs> yeah. Do I take the wrapping off? Does it matter? Um, so, so 
the you you know what happens when when you don't have the time to cook from scratch, then you end up taking something frozen and throwing it in the oven or throwing it in the microwave or or some sort of pre-prepared meal. And what happens is it's been prepared a long way away in a galaxy <laughs> far distant in time. And the process of processing it, I think, takes out a fair amount of the flavor. So what do you do? What do you do? Sugar. Well, you got to get your kids to eat it. Yeah, you add sugar and you add fat to to make up for the flavor. I mean, as a guy who obsessively grows vegetables in his own backyard, I can tell you a fresh tomato out of your own backyard is like carrot cake. It's so good. However, the sad, shrunken, old lady boob <laughs> tomato that you're getting from um, Timbuktu uh, to brought over on a camel, uh, well, it's not quite as as tasty. Uh, to put it mildly. And so you got to add sugar and you got to add fat, which is why so many processed foods, I can't remember the number, but it's just enormous, uh, the percentage of of processed foods in America that have either obvious or more subtly added fat. You really need fat in tomato sauce. Do you really? It's not jam, for God's sakes. But anyway, um, so you add add sugar and you add fat. Now, then, of course, there was this big anti-fat movement. I can't remember exactly when it started, but suddenly it all became... uh, hate speech. (laughs) Yeah, now it's... Fat-free is uh, um, uh, fat-free is uh, the new good thing, and 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 you got to buy stuff that's fat-free. But if it's processed and fat-free, it's not going to taste that good, <laughs> I think at all. So then you have to crank up the sugar. Now, of course, in American, I think it's still the case. Uh, America has very high tariffs on sugar, so it becomes too expensive. So you got to substitute fructose, glucose, and other kinds of fairly unholy Satan sweat sugar substitutes, and. Um, so, yeah, you're basically pumping up a lot of sugar into people who are becoming increasingly uh, sedentary. Yeah. And and high fructose corn syrup. I mean, there's there's one there is an argument for like some benefits of sugar, but the high fructose corn syrup is just absolute cancer, as opposed to if you were to actually go away to get sugar the right way from a piece of fruit, which, frankly, I find more delicious is is actually very good for you because it has so much more fiber and vitamins and minerals and whatnot. Hey, man, don't don't make me Jones for a peach. Um, mm-hmm. I, I still my, my most vivid memories were like the 12 days that you could get a really great peach in England when I was a kid. Oh, so good. Now I just I could just I could like bathe in peaches these days. I love them so much. Um, right. And of course, that's why we like sugar. Because sugar drew us to fruit, and fruit kept off scurvy and gave us the vitamin C that we needed and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, we're, we're drawn to fruit. That's why it's sweet, so that we take the effort to go and get it. So we shit out the seeds, and you get more trees. It's all part mm-hmm. of the cycle of life that is usually grosser than you ever <laughs> wanted. So, yeah, so you ended up with no home-cooked meals. You ended up with um, uh, deserted, uh, emptied-out neighborhoods where kids don't want to go out to play. And you ended up with um, – and I, I think part of – the dr- it's not the only thing, but I have a feeling that the vacuum of the neighborhood created a pull for electronics. In other oh, words, yeah. if kids could have gone out to play in the way that a lot of kids went out when they were when I was young, I think there'd be there would still have been some, but there would have been less. I think of a pull. But if uh, parents don't feel comfortable with their kids roaming around for whatever reason in the neighborhood, or maybe there are just aren't enough kids out there, then. The kids are home and they're bored. And then the parents are like, okay, fine, we'll get you a video game unit, which drives the demand for the video game unit that comes because the neighborhoods are emptied out, which further empties out the neighborhood. And anyway, you get the, the general oh my pattern. Gosh, yeah. So, I mean, these are just a couple of the thoughts I've had. I mean, I'm sure we could, we could add to them fairly significantly, but um, that's, um, you know, I was thinking about this uh, since you sent the question and uh, those were some of the things that I had uh, come up with and I just wanted to to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, uh, as far as the the first one on 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 processed foods, uh, 
one of the, that's one of the the like starting fitness and starting to prioritize it and be conscious about how I eat. Like the first thing that I I I started to understand is how many myths can go out the door if you just take a minute to look. And it the, that's the one that frustrates me the most is is people saying healthy food costs too much. That is <laughs> it's absolutely that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you can go compare a bag of get, chips to an apple, right? I know. And and you, the, the most you could say is that it's time consuming, which is fair. So technically, if you're going to think about it in terms of labor, depending on the meals you make and, and, and the ingredients you choose and whatnot, it can balance out one way or the other. But there's plenty of good, cheap and even fast, healthy ways to eat. So I really wish uh, uh, people would just like, if nothing else, prior towards like, I need more green stuff in me today. I, I'll just, heck, I'll just go buy a green pepper and shove it in my mouth, <laughs> something green. And just, it, it doesn't have to be cooked necessarily. Just start like getting a more balance of getting rid of the bad and putting in the good. And really, I mean, once you, once you start on some basic steps, you start feeling so much better that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good cycle that gets you into better habits. But, uh, as far as as uh, I'm I'm not sure what my my thoughts would be on on women leaving the home. Although definitely there, there's the facts to the statistics to back it up in regards to like uh, you know uh, 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 households where 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 both parents try to work or balance it and they have to rely on daycare, which which uh, like makes it so like the family doesn't have as much of a say on on the good habits and making family play and having at least some superficial supervision. So the mom can say, all right, come back in. I, uh, I think there is decent evidence for that, but thinking about the general trends and, and, and hearing the way you talked about the progression from the outside to the inside, it's, it really is uh, just mind blowing now that I think about it. Cause I'm technically a millennial. I'm 27. So I was born in those nineties ages, but I was on like the early onset where it was, we just barely started to see the very first Nintendo systems and the very first like computers and internet uh, and internet access. So now that I think about it, it really is like a perfect clear cut, like, like divide in my mind where I can remember thinking about all these times I went out of my way to just go out into the, into the, into the open wild and, and be a kid on a bike going around his neighborhood with some other friends kicking stones, throwing rocks into lakes and stuff like that. My, I remember my mom prioritizing more, more outings and stuff like this and uh, going into really wonderful just hiking trails and picnics. And even when I had like a, a bigger yard, there was a time when, uh, when, uh, when I just had more space that I, I just lived on that I loved, you know, playing around in the sandbox and, and, and climbing the tree and whatnot. And then, the Nintendo uh, and and TV rears its ugly head around my teens and and making uh, closer trends and I I can definitely think of my one around inside on the Game Boy and and whatnot and uh, it it's was a bit of a struggle since that since that day until uh until i just had the oh crap moment uh, looking at myself in the mirror just a couple years ago and it's it's just brutally stark divide that i can i can i can i can definitely acknowledge in my memory now that i was glad i am glad that i was lucky enough to be born just that on the on the early onset and the very first spots because now i at least i remember what good 
activity feels like. And I remember what good activity even is. And now we have a closer generation to just being born in, in the age of, of PC steam machines and PlayStation fours. And uh, I, I don't know if they're, if they're ever going to be able to put the great outdoors on the same level of their PlayStations in their heads. Now I prioritize at least hiking once a week and it feels so much more refreshing. I can't wait for it at the end of the week. And to me now, I, I, I let's like the, the video games have almost no, no, no pull on me. Like I'll enjoy them if I have them. And sometimes I'll occasionally indulge myself just on a weekend or something like everybody has their guilty pleasures. But if I had to choose to give up something, I can't imagine giving up just being able to go outside. That would, that would be a nightmare to me. Right, right, right. And uh, a couple other things, you know, there's this energy drink thing, which I don't know, seems a bit like just is, is water not, not something that your body can handle anymore. Uh, so soft drinks, right? Like one can of soft drink a day will make you 15 pounds heavier a year. All other things being equal. I don't um, even touch that stuff anymore. That was the first thing to go when I, when I had to start making things about stuff to go. I didn't have, as if you're going to look for soda replacements, cause I, I didn't need soda replacements. Have you ever tried a kombucha actually? No, it's a, it's a something, it's a something of a new trend. It's like a fermented, uh, mushroom tea that has a hint of the carbonation, a bit of a tanginess. That's almost like apple vinegar, but it's mostly tea and it has barely as many calories as fruit juice and it still has some fizziness. So I don't in case there's anybody looking for alternatives. <laughs> right. Good to, good to know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it's a, it's a big, it's a big topic. And many years ago I read uh, a blog. I just, I don't know. I was maybe 15 years ago, no more, more, maybe 20 years ago. Um, and it was this guy who was overweight and, and, he basically went to his, went for his checkup, and his his insurance company was like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, you know, we, we'll insure you, but you know, we're gonna have to take a kidney and sell it on the black market or something like that. Yeah. So you you get these kinds of wake up calls that uh, I think are important, you know, for people trying to make best. So you know, he did the whole, you know, recognize, got to change your lifestyle, and you got to change it forever. You can't go back. And you have to avoid eating out. It's particularly, um, you know, I mean, I find it the case. Maybe it's just my imagination. But in America, I mean, food portions, you know, like they basically back up the pasta truck with the beep, beep, beep and just bury you uh, when it comes to portion sizes. And uh, a lot of people, I don't know, they just don't feel like I can get three meals out of this. I'll take it to go. I finish it. And so there is a lot of um, those just just bad habits that people get into. And I don't know how people don't notice that they can't fit into their clothes, that they, they have no energy. You have no energy because this is the vicious cycle of the sedentary lifestyles. Like I haven't, I haven't exercised in a long time. And I think it's like 20, 25% of Americans are basically sedentary and, um, which is sort of like, <laughs> like being without limbs, but, but you still have them at least uh, in a titular sense. And you have little energy, which means that you don't want to get up anyway. Uh, and so when you've got a bunch of kids who haven't been moving and let's say you do suddenly teleport them to the outdoors for a nice game of tag, how's that going to go? <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. Just tag me. I lie down here. <laughs> let's play meditation. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there, there is this kind of vicious cycle of, of inactivity that 
Uh, and, and of course, you know, I mean, binge watching and, and, you know, snacking on your, whatever it is you're snacking on. I mean, it's, uh, it's dicey stuff and it drives, you know, when people don't have the economic consequences of their own decisions, it's the economics that, uh, that I think help remind people of the actual costs and the economics of people's bad health decisions are often shielded from them by, you know, socialized medicine or, or various aspects of government control or management and things. And, um, I don't, I mean, I don't know uh, what the rule is in America anymore. Can you, do you charge people more for higher BMI uh, on their health insurance? I don't think you can at the moment. Yeah. And, th- and it's funny you mentioned BMI. That's uh, something uh, people in the, in the fat acceptance movement bring up as a, something of an issue in it being. Un- Kareem un- uh, Abdul-Jabbar is her. Lou Ferrigno. Is her. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's not the majority of people who have those proportions. There's a, there's a, there's a big difference between a Lou Ferrigno and a Whitney Thor. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right but uh yeah there is some truth i mean if you if you get to healthy enough to the point where you know you're you, you have your six-pack you really should stop even giving a crap about your weight because there's more useful metrics but i don't think they i don't even think they had insurance i usually get it from an employer and i can't recall it from my personal experience being asked about my weight during that we still get asked about smoking thankfully but um no i haven't I, I can't recall being asked about my weight for any type of insurance purposes and stuff like that and i'll let me just drop one other thought back to my last one and this is really speculative so you know forgive me if it ends up being completely false but I'll throw it out there yeah um it's like a wet nap against the wall let's just see if it sticks um yeah i think that deep down uh, people stress eat. And and I think life in the West is pretty stressful these days. Mm-hmm. A lot of economic uncertainty. Huge numbers of Americans have like no money for savings. And they are like one car ding or medical bill away from disaster. And, and I mean, it's really stressful. And uh, because mm-hmm. the economy is not doing well, there are more people who want to work than are working, which means that everybody's kind of insecure in their job. And people are stressed because, you know, they don't have a lot of social support in in terms of raising kids. There's a lot of studies that show that a lot of people get less happy after they have children. And uh, a lot of it has to do with just not having the social support that they need in order to be Mm -hmm. good parents and do the right thing and be happy with what they're doing. And... And I think that deep down, when we lose our communities, it's very stressful for us because we are social animals. We are tribal animals. We are designed to be in a community, which is why, you know, there was real dysfunction in my home growing up, but at least there was a community out there. You know, it wasn't a great community in a lot of ways, but it was people to play with. There was things outside the home. And you really need that. If your home life is not that great, it's nice, nice to get out and about and yeah. so I think when neighbors when neighborhoods fragment and, and fall away from us, I think we are very stressed. I, I think our bodies experience that as a very stressful condition because the reason we banded together as a tribe is because we're so exquisitely vulnerable for our childhoods and, you know, we need to sleep for a long time and we're not great at sleeping in trees, so we need people to guard us and, and we need the security of, of a tribe of, of people around us. And because people live these pretty isolated lives without communities and and uh, because of bad economics, they often have to move away from where they grew up. You know, the jobs are all gone and you've you know, got to move someplace new and uh, and all that. I think 
I think that people are at a very sort of deep level experiencing a lot of stress in the West. Very deep level, a lot of stress. What's going to happen to the future? What's going to happen? I mean, look at the polarizing elections that are going on in the United States. Which way is it going to go? What's going to happen? Um, what's going to happen with the national debt? What's going to happen with immigration? What's going to happen with um, the difficulties of, of uh, integrating uh, widely different cultures? What, what, what the hell is going to happen? And I think people experience quite a bit of stress. And I think that when human beings experience stress, they will uh, often overeat. And I think that they'll tend to eat stuff that's less good. And I can sort of understand that, right? Because stress is the body's way of saying there's something dangerous in the environment or something that's risky in the environment. So we might as well pile some fat on just in case, right? So that's very, very speculative, but that's just uh, a, a sort of thought uh, out of the blue. But sorry, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, it's like, that's why they call it comfort food. The fattier, the better. <laughs> but, right. Yeah, uh, but yeah you, your boyfriend breaks up with you, 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 you face plant into the uh, ice cream, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I mean, that's really all I had to say. You know, my favorite forms of exercise, I, I love to walk, I love to hike. Um, I enjoy weights. Uh, I uh, cardio has always been a bit of a nemesis for me. Uh, I know I need to do it and I do it. Um, I'll generally do it on a bike machine because at least I can read or, you know, something cause cardio is, uh, sorry, it's a little boring. <laughs> it's a little bit, you know, when I was younger, I did a uh, swim team and water polo and cross country running and tennis and all of that. And, uh, tennis I still enjoy, but it's cardio is a little boring. <laughs> Look, I'm running. Look, I'm bouncing. And of course, the entire swim team experience is, sum is summoned up this way. Yurgle, gurgle, burgle, yurgle, burgle, gurgle, yurgle, burgle. For, for like, you can't talk with anyone. You can't listen to music. There's just stuff, chlorine creeping its way into your inner ear and bleaching your brain. So, uh, so yeah, those are the uh, exercises that uh, I do. I enjoy running races with my daughter and her friends. Uh, and um, uh, I, I enjoy a good bike ride. If you've got a good trail... Uh, that's challenging and interesting. Uh, I enjoy uh, a good wood trail on a bike, you know, uppy downy side to side is always uh, lots of fun. But um, that's been a little thin lately. Uh, my daughter's uh, up on, on her bike now, but uh, uh, that was a little thin, of course, when she, she was younger. But uh, so those are the things that, uh, that I like to do. And um, I try to limit sit down time during the day. Uh, I'm, if I can, you know, if I can keep it to under an hour or two, fantastic. Cause you don't need to go nuts to exercise. I mean, you, you do half an hour of, of fairly vigorous stuff five days a week. I mean, you're doing okay. Um, but, uh, it seems really hard for people to even get that far. And the, the last thing I wanted to mention is that, um, uh, breastfeeding, breastfeeding your, your babies, uh, particularly with boys will uh, slow down weight gain later on. And so the giant experiment of having giant chemical boobs feed our children these days uh, may also have some, something to do with with what's going on. So it's a lot of a lot of things to uh, to to ponder. And again, you know, please uh, call in. It's I, I find the topic fascinating, as I think a lot of people do. So please, please call in and uh, let us know what your thoughts are on this topic. Uh, and uh, remember that uh, <laughs> I'm certainly no expert, but I do find the topic very uh, very fascinating. So uh, all right, so let's move on to the next. All right, up next is Tristan. Tristan wrote in and said, I've been in a seven-year relationship with my girlfriend. She's originally from Europe, and most summers she goes back to Europe for a month to see friends and family. When she leaves, all of these feelings and thoughts of jealousy and insecurity creep up, stuff I usually don't feel back when she's home. I get very depressed and feel unimportant to her while she's there. These issues are compounded with the fact that she spends the majority of her time on a secluded island with friends. 
stays out till literally 5, 6 in the morning, every night partying. I feel incredibly suspicious and think the worst in terms of infidelity, and really need to hear a different perspective. Am I being too sensitive? Am I being selfish? That's from Tristan. Well, hello, Tristan. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Is she back yet this summer? She is. She is. She is. All right. All right. What do you mean by selfish? Like, how, how would you know? So you say, am I being selfish? How would you know if you were being selfish? Uh, what would the standard be or how would you judge that? Um, I think if um, I feel like, I don't know, like, um, you know, she's just having fun and here I am. Um, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. You know, I feel like uh, she's just, having fun and I'm being too selfish to think. Uh, I, I, honestly, I don't know. So, sorry, Morgan. Do, um, is there a, um, why don't you go with her? Sometimes I do. Um, other times, um, it's just a matter of, you know, a three week tri- trip to Europe is <laughs> expensive. So sometimes I just can't afford it or I have work or other commitments. How, how does she afford it? Um, well, her family lives there, so sometimes her family pays for it to go for her to go. But not you. No, no. Yeah, well, I mean, you're not married or whatever. So it's. No. And why? Why do you think you're not married? I'm not saying you should be or shouldn't be. I mean, just obviously, it's a logical step. To, it's certainly a question that would come up, right? So. Um. Yeah. Um. I'd eventually like to be. Um. But um, I'm, I'm I'm 26, so I've been waiting until I got a little older to be in a like to be in a better a be, to be fe- better financially stable before um, that happens. I'm not there yet. How long do you think it will take uh, for you to get where you want to get to in terms of financial stability? I'm hoping by the end of my 20s. Wow, that's a that's a haul. <laughs> and is she she's in your age group? Yeah. She's a year younger than me. Right. And have you had any indications of any potential infidelities? No. No. See, that's the thing. Right. And when she goes uh, out, you say till five or six in the morning, which, you know, it's it's Europe, so. Right. Um, but is are they going to nightclubs? Is it is it people's houses? I mean, what's where is she going? At this point, the caller's audio quality started breaking up really bad, so we called him back on a phone line. So, um, I was asking if it was sort of a nightclubs, uh, and she, you said it was kind of a mix uh, of the two, yeah. and that she's going out every night uh, for these uh, for these uh, parties uh, all night. Yeah. Now, I, I, you know, I, this may be old guy perspective, but, um, oh, man, I'll tell you, uh, nightclubs are pickup joints. <laughs> I mean, look, let's, I mean, it doesn't mean that everyone who goes there gets picked up. Of course not, right? But let's not fool ourselves about what they're for, right? They're not for Baccarat. Right. They're not for, uh, they're not for poker. Well, maybe strip poker. They're for uh, <laughs> drinking and sweating and dancing and bumping and grinding because I spent a lot of time in nightclubs when I was younger, and I don't think they've changed an enormous amount uh, from the days uh, when I used to go clubbing a lot. So uh, yeah. that, again, that that if she was going on church picnics, 
uh, you probably would feel a little less uh, concerned, but it's the nightclubs with the booze and the dudes and all that, right? Exactly, exactly. Right. And I mean, to be fair to her, um, you know, uh, really on the island, there's all not that much to do. <laughs> you go to the beach. Well, why go for a month go then? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. But yeah, no, totally. And I guess that's where uh, all the kind of fear and insecurity stems from. Well, we don't know if if it's insecurity. I, I mean, I mean, you're, you're putting like the words that you use to describe it. Uh, you you sound like, and I've just based upon you. You immediately said, "To be fair to her, you sound like a very um, a very fair based person." Yeah. And that can have its advantages, and it can have its disadvantages too, right? You yeah. you see every sides of every issue, and and you maybe don't want to call people on stuff and. Um, and you're self-critical, right? In other words, you say, oh, well, yeah. I might be being selfish or whatever, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, right. Now, I assume that your girlfriend knows uh, about this, right? Your feelings? Yeah, yeah. I tend to, and uh, I, I, I tend to kind of get pretty freaked out and kind of not ruin her time, but... I kind of put a damper on because, uh, you know, I, I talk to she's I talk to her about these things, and I obviously sometimes don't do it in the best of ways. Um, well, see you now, then really... you, you, I don't want to just you know you're going to have to grit your teeth and just be more straight with me, you know, because it's like this is what I do, but it may do it badly and not in the best of ways, and so on. Like I get that. I mean, that's natural for everyone. Not everyone does everything perfectly, <laughs> but uh, I understand. Uh, I, I don't need all the caveats, right? And I know I use caveats sometimes too, but. Um, we got to get to the to the heart of the matter. Uh, l- let me just go through a couple of basics as to sure. what may be, may be occurring. Obviously, I don't know, but these are just some possibilities. Yeah. Um, so how would you rate yourself in terms of uh, looks or, or sexual market value, the old one to ten? I don't know, seven. Okay, seven out of ten. Uh, and uh, how would you rate your girlfriend? Uh, eight, eight and a half. 8.5. Okay. So we have a, an insecurity discrepancy at the beginning, right? Which is that now, if you're seven and you have other compensating factors, um, you're the lead singer in a band, uh, you're nine feet tall, you're, or whatever, right. I mean, a lot of money or, or you're famous or whatever it is, right? But right. Uh, you're still struggling to get where you want to get to financially, right? Yes. Right, so she's more attractive than you, and you're broke. Is that too too strong to to a strong way to put it? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, <laughs> pretty much. All right, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad. We're just trying to figure out whether yeah, there's reasons behind what you're feeling. Does she want to have children? Uh, I think eventually, yeah. No, you didn't just tell me that, did you? You didn't just say that those words. <laughs> That you, you have been with this woman for seven goddamn years, and you don't know whether she wants to have children? Uh, yes, the answer is yes. Is she too hungover to chat with? I don't I don't know what, why you wouldn't know these things. No, no, yes, she does. But you sounded more doubtful before. Uh, maybe I sound doubtful because we're just kind of in a bad place in our relationship right now, so... Well, no, but that's, you know, you, you, that wouldn't make you doubtful as to how old she is and whether she wants to have kids if that's something you've already decided and talked about. 
because if she wants to have children, then she is, in general, right? We show you know the concept of hypergamy, but in general, if she wants to have children, she's going to be looking for resources. She's going to need them, right? If you don't have those resources, then it's possible. It's theoretically possible. Again, I don't know this woman. And, you know, if she wants to chat anytime, she's welcome to. But she she may be, she may have the radar app. Right. Especially if also you're not doing well as a couple at, yeah. at the moment, right? No. Right. Right. Yeah. That's true. Because, you know, trusting your partner is they're not going to choose anyone over you. Right. Now, I'm just going to, I'm not going to talk about you guys. I'm just going to talk about theoretical stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Just, and I, I think maybe it'll have some utility for you. And let me know. Yeah. Love is what draws at least heterosexual people together to make babies. Love knows love and lust know nothing of birth control or or whatever, right? I mean, so love is the attraction that we have that brings us together to make babies. So love is very practical. Why? Because taking care of babies is very practical. You know, you can write a poem for your lover. You cannot feed your child with a poem. And so there's a lot of romance that is to do with wooing that doesn't really have much to do with actually raising children, which is why romance exists in the first place. It's why sex drive exists. It's why uh, the, the, the sort of heady connection in the first six months of a relationship, it's why all of that stuff, all of the endorphins you get flooded with when in the presence of your loved one, uh, particularly for men, when we lose our minds, right? Yeah. So, so romance is about sex and sex is about babies and babies are very practical. They need stuff. They need resources. They just like this big giant well, you throw money, time, resources, food, energy, sleep and everything down. And, you know, the only thing that comes back to you is a real life human being. <laughs> you know, it's a cool deal and all. But all right. there are very practical elements to love. And the best way, biologically speaking, to maintain the interest of your girlfriend is to be the best guy around. And that doesn't mean like some abstract thing like the, but to have the most success, to have the most resources, to have the most whatever, right? Because a woman's love is designed to gain her, re like a woman's beauty is designed to gain her resources to feed her children. A woman's sexual attractiveness, a woman's cooking ability, like whatever, whatever it is. A woman's sexual market value is designed to attract a man who will give her resources by which she can take care of their children. Does this sort of make sense? I mean, I'm just talking about a sort of bald mammalian survival level. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. So if you think... Deep down, at some level, Tristan, I would guess, if you think that there's someone out there that's better for her or could be better for her, then that may be part of the insecurity that you describe. Yeah. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, on some level, deep down, I believe that is true. So the question, to me, a lot of jealousy is you have to answer that fundamental question, which all lovers must answer. Can she do better than me? Now, question on, on a bit. Um, you, you were talking before about, you know, um, what a woman kind of seeks out in a man. What would be the opposite when, when we're talking about like this? What just for a woman seeks out the best mate to have his kid or what exactly is the opposite? Like what, what would a man look for? What's hypergamy for a man? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what is a man looking for? Well, a, a man is looking for three things. Quality, fertility, loyalty. Quality, insofar as it's nice if her face is proportional, uh, it's nice if she's intelligent, uh, she has virtues and characteristics that are positive and all of that. Right. Because, you know, that's the, you're, you're dipping your dick into a big vat of genes, right? <laughs> and so, you know, you, you want to make sure you're getting some good genes coming out of there, which is why um, sexual market value has a lot to do with good genetics, right? Um. Lustrous hair uh, indicates uh, good health, uh, uh, a good hip-to-waist ratio. Uh, fat deposits on certain parts and non-fat deposits on other parts indicate fertility. Uh, clear eyes, clear skin, white teeth, like all of the things, even features which indicate a good uh, genetic um, uh, mix. So a man is looking for quality and fertility because if the woman is infertile, then you'll have fun, but you won't have, your genes won't have a future, right? And loyalty, uh, for two reasons. One is that you want to make sure you're raising your own child. So, right, you'd want to have loyalty. Um, and, and secondly, you, you don't want her having kids uh, with you and then running off with someone else. Whether she takes the kids or not, I mean, but it means that that's not good for your sexual market value and it's not good for your kids, which is obviously the most important part. So, yeah, quality, fertility, and loyalty, I think, um, are the important characteristics that uh, men look for. Uh, and, you know, the virtue and, and all of this uh, is, is important for both genders. So I'm not trying to say women are only looking for money. They're looking for quality. And, but, but quality for women includes money more than um, – it, it includes money. It includes more than money, but um, resources is, is very uh, important. There's an old movie – with Ralph Fiennes and Jennifer Lopez called Made in Manhattan. Yeah. And she's got a son who gets it, right? Because the, the, the Ray Fiennes place is a rich politician, a scion of the city. And uh, she improbably plays a poor maid, you mm -hmm. know, but she's, she's got a nice butt. Uh, apparently that's well. That's shown in the movie. And, and her, she's, like, he's like, he, she's like saying to her son, why is he interested in me? I'm just a lowly maid. And he says, his son says, mom, I don't think he's interested in your money. 
And she laughed. How could you say that? Oh, right. Well, but, you know, a, a, a man will look at an attractive cashier and think, well, very pretty and a nice figure. And, mm, right? Because the fertility is, is not as important as, you know, does she have money? But I don't know that. Well, I mean, of course, women will find an attractive cashier, but it's a different strategy, right? I mean, yeah. Because you can you can take that cashier if she's a quality person and and fertile and you can marry her and make babies with her and you can provide the resources if she's going to be a great mom and a great wife. It's great, right? You need to bring the money because you can bring the money as the man. But it's a little less. I mean, maybe it's changing now with more our selection. So it's a little bit less common, I think, uh, the other way around. So, so that's the question. Because um, you have you closed the deal with her? I mean, as far as are you guys in it for your lives? I mean, I. Doesn't have to. You don't have to be married to do that. I mean, we just make the commitment. Uh, well, honestly, I would have said I felt pretty confident about that until pretty recently. So. Um, well, you know, um, when you close the deal, you don't have to feel confident because you've closed the deal. You know, like if if you've got someone to sign on the dotted line to buy the car, if you're a car salesman, you're not pretty confident about the deal. You've closed the deal, and so you haven't closed the deal as far as. I mean, do you want to be with this woman for the rest of your life, Tristan? I do. All right. And does she know that that's what you want? She does. <laughs> yeah. And does she feel the same way? I don't know right now, to be honest. She well, says that's... she doesn't know right now. She says she doesn't know. And how long has she not known for? I don't know that answer. Well, how I long really have you guys been it. having significant problems? Um, well, see, that's what's kind of, um, frustrating is I thought we were doing pretty good right now, but, um, I I had a really bad, uh, point in my life a few years ago and, uh, she never really got over that. So I kind of bubbled up quite recently, recently, even though I kind of changed my life around and I'm doing much better in all these different ways, but, um, so I thought we were doing better, but this shit hasn't worked out with her. So with us, um, so everything's really up in the air right now. Well, I would say that, um, that's the issue that I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, of course, but I would say that that's the issue you need to work on, not where she is at 4am. Because if you've got your relationship worked out, you're probably not going to be paranoid or, or fearful about where she is at 4 a.m. But if there are significant issues right at the core of your relationship and one of you is more certain than the other about your future together, you know, after seven years, you should know. You know, if I bought a house and seven years into living there, I'm like, you know, I don't know if I want to live in this house. I don't know if I like this house or not. I don't know if I want to keep this house or not. What would people say? Yeah, you're never really too much into the house. But that that raises the question, what about divorce? I, I grew up in divorced, divorced parents, and so I, I believe that one time, yes, my parents loved each other, but they fell out of love, or rather my mom fell out of love with uh, dad. So I've always grown up with this idea that 
I don't know. There's no such thing as sealing the deal. Because even when you think it's sealed, uh, it might not be. Right, right, right. Well, of course, you're not married, so the divorce thing doesn't matter as much. It certainly doesn't no. apply legally, right? Um, I don't know if you're common law or whatever, but you don't have to tell me that. But um, the other thing, too, is you don't have kids yet. No. Right? I mean, the, the from to, to my mind, Tristan, divorce becomes really, really important when you have kids. Right. Which you don't, you don't have. No. And look... <sighs> It's this issue of, of history and repetition always frustrates me. And it's not to do with you. And I apologize if this sounds harsh, Tristan, but it's like, mm-hmm. well, my parents did this. So that's the way it has to be. Or, well, my parents made a commitment and, and their commitment didn't work out. So how am I going to know? Blah, blah, blah. Right. But it's like that old story of two brothers. One's an alcoholic and one doesn't drink at all. They go to the alcoholic and they say, why are you an alcoholic? He says, because my dad drank. That's all I know. They go to the the brother who doesn't drink anything, alcoholic. And they say, how come you're a teetotaler? You don't drink at all. He said, my dad was an alcoholic. I saw how terrible it was. You have a rare chance to learn about commitment because you saw a commitment being broken, which means you can analyze what happened with your parents' marriage and talk about it with them, hopefully, and get some answers about what happened with your parents' marriage. And you can figure out how to avoid that stuff. You know, if, if, you're, if you've got a dad who died of a heart attack when he was 40 because he was 300 pounds, you can choose not to become 300 pounds. You know what I mean? Like this, you can look at your parents mm-hmm. and say, okay, well, there's, there's a big sign that says, don't go this way. Don't do this. Whatever you do, don't do what they did. And that is, you know... If your parents made bad decisions, in my opinion, the best you can get out of those bad decisions is wisdom. And that actually brings a certain amount of redemption to those bad decisions. You know, if your parents made bad decisions about who they married or made they made bad decisions about getting divorced, well, if you can extract the principles of commitment and, and love and respect and honor and all the good things that are going to keep you together with your girlfriend, it brings some redemption to those bad decisions. It, it does redeem them in a way. Does this make any sense? It absolutely does. And I'm, I'm right there with you. The thought that I'm having while you're saying this, though, is um, that would be perfect if the relationship was solely in my control. You know, when there's another person in the mix, they might not have the same drive to you know, make, keep the commitments and, um, not do what parents did, you know? Well, but, but so you're talking about your girlfriend here that she may not have the same commitment to you, right? Well, to the idea of, no, no, there's no idea. There's you, there's, there's you, um, you, you're not dating it. You're not in a threesome with an idea, right? There's just you two. And so, so then your choice is to find a way to win her over to full commitment or to recognize that you got into a seven-year relationship with somebody who's not committed. And there's things to be learned from that, too. Yeah, that's true. 
there's an old saying Dr. Phil has. He says, the only thing worse than spending two years in a relationship that's bad for you is spending two years and one day in a relationship that's bad for you. And like, I'm not saying this applies to you. It's just a perspective, right? Because people do sometimes hang on like grim death and, and you know, drag the relationship around like, like a weekend of Bernie's. Um, maybe that, that's where you are. Maybe that's not where you are. But I think uh, it's time for some really honest soul-searching uninterruptedly with your girlfriend you know what are we doing what's her plan what's her goal um are we both committed to the same level to the same degree and you know we have this eternal youth these days it was it was coming in definitely when i was around but it's much much stronger now where you're hoping to become an adult in a way in your late twenties, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's a long time to wait to become an adult. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't get my shit together soon enough. Right. And I sympathize, you know, with the bad time. And, and we did, um, we did uh, your adverse childhood experience score, which was six. And that's tough. That is hard. That is a very difficult childhood. I won't go into the details, but, but I just really wanted to offer my sympathy. And it does take a while to dig yourself out of a bad childhood, right? Yeah, definitely. And... There is a movie called, um, I'm, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to check on this. I'm going to check because I'm, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's it. All right. There's a movie uh, directed by Mike Lee starring the volcanic David Thewlis called Naked. And uh, I think, I think... I saw it. I used to go out with a woman who had the inside scoop on the Toronto Film Festival. I think I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival. I saw some great Sin Compassione, an incredible Spanish film, an adaptation of Crime and Punishment. Amazing. Anyway, so David Thewlis was in this movie called uh, Naked. And it's old. Um, it won Best Director and Best Actor at the 1993 Cannes Film Festival. Uh, so it, it's a very sort of nihilistic and, and dark film. And at one point, and I apologize, I'm sorry, I'm murdering the dialogue. But at one point, the woman turns to the man and she says, how old are you? And he says, I don't know, 25 or 26. And she says, you know, when my mother was your age, she already had three children or two children. And he holds up his hand and says, Stop! Stop. Because the idea that he was living this perpetual adolescence while his mother had, this woman's mother had children and was a wife and by that that age was unbearable to him. Hmm. And given your childhood, I mean, again, massive sympathies. This is not any kind of negativity. 
but it can be possible to 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 live in a kind of timeless way in your in your 20s and you've got 7 years into a relationship that it sounds like is kind of hanging on not by a thread but you know it seems to have significant problems yeah so mortality panic can be helpful but i you know my suggestion would be that your concern about her being out on europe's all night party island is probably more to do with the fact that there is a lot that I think is not resolved or not communicated at the bottom of your relationship. And I think having those conversations uh, about where your hearts are at, where your future is, what she's looking for, if you went through, as you say, a, a dark period a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. And really if bad. she remains goosed by that, and, and if she remains unable to commit, then that needs to be, that needs to be very clear to you. Because if there's something foundational that she can't accept or can't forgive about who you are or what you've done, that's important information for you to have. So I hope that that helps. I know it's not much of an answer, but... You know, I've got a book called Real-Time Relationships, uh, which talks about some some of this stuff in more detail from my perspective. So that would be my suggestion. Just, you know, get in completely unobstructed night and just just talk. Okay. Right. <clears throat> All right. Thank you. You're very welcome. And uh, I, hope it, uh, I hope it works out. Thank you so much for calling in. Thanks. Have a good night. Take care. All right, up next is Morgan. Morgan wrote in and said, Carl Sagan stated that we are all made of, quote-unquote, star stuff. It seems to me that some of that stuff is infinite, and some of that stuff is finite. It also seems to me that some of the infinite stuff is out of our control, and some of the infinite stuff is in our control. Additionally, it seems to me that some of the finite stuff is out of our control, and then some of the finite stuff is in our control. How can objectivity be utilized to explain the infinite part of us in addition to the finite part of us? That's from Morgan. So it's a little well, vague. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's a little vague. That's fine. It's, it's big picture stuff, which I'm always thrilled to do. So uh, perhaps you could like to unfog it a little. You know, we, we breathed on the mirror and let's, let's rub something on it. Well, more specifically, I feel like I'm an infinite being in a sense, or at least part of me is. And I feel like I'm constricted by my culture. I feel like I'm sort of like in this house of mirrors, if you will, uh, because I live in the United States and just, just because of everything that's going on and everything you talk about in your monologues and in your dialogues. And I was wondering if you could maybe give me some advice on how objectivity could help me protect that part of myself or maybe expand that part of myself or somehow become more effective in coping with the culture I'm surrounded by. <laughs> if that makes right, any right. sense. Well, what, uh, what are the parts of you that feel uh, infinite? My creativity, uh, my perception, 
my thoughts, you know, I never stop thinking, uh, my interest, my desire to learn. I don't think that learning is something that ends when you graduate from college. And love, knowledge, things that connect me and my family. I, I just feel like there are these these things in life that are permanent, that are unchangeable. And also I feel like law, you know, the universal law, law with the capital L, maybe you could call it the Dharma or the Dharma. That I feel is also timeless and unchangeable. And and I feel like I feel like there are a lot of forces acting upon me from the outside that are sort of getting in between me and myself. And I feel like I need to kind of reconnect with the truth and become more objective in the way I lead my life. Is that still too vague? <laughs> I think we're circling something. Um, infinite. It's a, it's a big ass word, Morgan. <laughs> infinite. Yeah. Your creativity, your creativity. You're not very creative, extremely creative or infinite. That's uh how, help me understand that word choice. Um, well, maybe to say everybody is a genius at at least one thing. And that thing that we call genius, that one thing that really, that we're really good at is the infinite part of ourselves that never stops making, that never stops producing, that never stops connecting and, and impacting the world at large. And I feel that a lot of people, especially in my country in the United States are being strongly encouraged to somehow either curtail that or somehow like wrap that around itself and just kind of like shut that part of themselves off. And I feel like, you know, the media maybe to a certain extent is doing that. Um, it can also be feminism, the dark side of feminism, certain isms, a lot of the isms, I think maybe doing that to us. Well, okay. But if we want to start with precision and objectivity, your creativity yeah. is not infinite. It's not. Okay. No, I mean, it can't be because can't be. we're bound by time and space and mortality and, and so on, right? I mean, if you're, I guess you could be painting a picture with two hands, but you're not painting with your feet or your ass or whatever, right? So, um, exactly. just technically, um, it can't be infinite. I mean, if, right. if space is not infinite, your creativity, which is smaller than space, can't be infinite, right? And it's not a negative. It's, I mean, we're just trying to be more precise, right? Exactly. And so right. in, in terms of my creativity being finite, what are the things that make it finite? Is it perhaps my biology, my nervous system? Well, I just, I just gave you older? some examples, right? I just gave oh, you some examples, okay. which is that you're mortal, which means that at some point your creativity, like your life, will come to an end, right? Right. So it can't be infinite. Um, you were not creative before you were born, Maybe uh, you invented your own sign language in the womb or whatever, but certainly, let's say before you had hands, when you only had pseudopods or whatever fish stage we're going through with fins or whatever the hell happens that, that early on. But um, you were not infinitely creative. I mean, neither am I, neither is any mortal being. Um, by, by definition, we are within a finite system and therefore we cannot be infinite. Make sense? Yeah. Have you ever felt, though, that there were certain parts of you that just wanted to keep going, <laughs> keep pushing the limits? <clears throat> me, me, me push the limits? I, I, why? I don't know what you, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I've never felt <laughs> pushing. Of course, I mean every every damn show it feels like. Um, now, you are to some degree eternal. 
But that which is eternal right. about you, Morgan, is the least human part of you, which is your atoms, which you share with. This is the star stuff, right? Stars right. are just, you know, hot messes, you know, <laughs> yeah, even right. more so than Hollywood starlets, right? So uh, they're just uh, hot, boiling, exploding eternal bombs or not eternal, but long lasting bombs, right? And right. so the energy and the matter that you are created of um, existed before you and will outlive you. You know, we we go from our lives to our coffins, to the worms, to the <laughs> to the to the soil, to the the, the the plants, to the sky, to the you know all. I mean, we we're part of the cycle of life. The law of con- the law of conservation of energy, the law of conservation of matter. Yeah, we, we you know, I the atoms that compose me were not created with my birth. Uh, they um, have existed uh, for billions and billions of years, and so this. But the, so the stuff that is most long lasting about us is the stuff that is least associated with our humanity. Our humanity is, in a sense, the briefest part of us because our bodies, the, the atoms which compose our bodies, have been around forever, almost, right. and. Uh, whereas our humanity doesn't even, we're not even born with humanity. It's something that we develop and grow. And of course, it can end if we make bad habits uh, or we're in bad environments or we make bad decisions or for a variety of who knows what or how reasons, we can lose our humanity. We can become cold hearted. We can become cruel. We can become unkind. We can become selfish. We can become destructive. We can, all of these things can happen to us. We lose our humanity. It is a, uh, uh, sometimes keeping your humanity in the world feels a little bit like uh, cupping a, a tiny candle in a windstorm. Oh, yes. I guess I'll use my uh, Elton John analogies, like candle in the wind. And so the uh, – and of course we can lose it through senility as well if we get you know, old and uh, our brains uh, start to work less well. Uh, we can uh, lose uh, that essential uh, part of us. Uh, brain injuries uh, can, can do the same thing. And – so that which is most human and humane about us is, in a sense, the last to develop, the first to go, and sometimes it seems the toughest to maintain. So what I'm arguing to you is that that which is best about you is the opposite of infinite and eternal, uh, and that's why we need philosophy. Yeah, so would you say that a lot of it has to do with maintenance? A lot of it has to do with maintaining some sort of practice or discipline in order to continue, you know, to uphold my humanity in the face of all this inhumane stuff that's going on around me? Well, I mean, I think that uh, virtue is knowledge plus courage. I mean, you you have to know Mm -hmm. what is right, and then you have to, well, (laughs) you have to do what is right. Uh, If you do what you think is right without knowing, you're going to most likely go wrong. And if you only know what is right without doing what is right, then you have knowledge without action, which is really a form of self-reproach. So because it inflames your conscience into calling you a coward. So uh, philosophy, of course, will tell you what is good uh, and um, self-knowledge and discipline will give you the strength to do what is right and do what is good. Uh, and uh, so damn the consequences. So, yeah, I mean, as far as what is good, what is right, you know, the non-aggression principle and um, uh, self-ownership and, and property and, and all of these. I mean, these are the things I've gone into in great detail in my free book on ethics, universally preferable behavior, a rational proof of secular ethics. So mm-hmm. all of these 
virtues. Uh, I think, at least I think I've done a good job of explaining them. Uh, and then all that all that is needed when you have a great car is the key. And the key to the ignition is your self-knowledge, your choice, and your will to do uh, what is right. So, I feel that I, I feel like I do have courage, but I'm also very much guilty of acting before thinking, or <laughs> you know, just get, getting the feeling rather than the thought, and then acting upon it because in my gut it feels right, and then having to justify it later to whomever, you know, somebody I'm in a relationship with, maybe my spouse or my employer, and and in a sense that's not ethical. From from what you're telling me, that's what I'm understanding. Because I see myself as a very creative person, and so I'll get these creative inspirations and feelings, and I'll do things, but I'll have to justify them later, usually. Oh, <laughs> and then I get okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. So you're one of these. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but but tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, it sounds to me, Morgan, like you're one of these. I'm creative, so have different standards for me, kind of people. I used to be much more like that when I was younger. I've been working on that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, and that's, yes. that's important yes. because to me, if you're creative, you have an additional responsibility. You don't have lower responsibilities. You have higher responsibilities because your creativity can do so much good in the world that I yeah. think you're held to a higher standard if you're creative, not a lower standard. Although, because creativity has a certain amount of charisma to it, and, and to the non or less creative, it looks like a kind of infinite magic, which is perhaps where your self-characterization of your creativity came from. It does yeah. look like a kind of magic. Like It's like a shy person watching Freddie Mercury. Oh, yeah, he's back. He, just, he would have been 70. I'd love to have heard his voice at 70. But anyway, um, so it's like a shy person watching Freddie Mercury at Live Aid. Like, this is magic. How is it possible that he's singing this ferociously, this concentratedly, this passionately? Uh, this uh, excitedly, uh, to all these people, I'd be up there frozen, right? And it looks like a kind of magic, these these sorts of abilities. Like um, uh, somebody who is, there used to be an old show called Whose Line Is It Anyway with Drew Carey and uh, and others. And these oh, yeah, were all people. Yeah, so you've, you've seen it, right? Um, there was this guy who uh, was um, really good at uh, singing. He had a talk show later. He was really good at making up songs on the fly. And of course, you know, these the people have had years and years. He's the one I remember most from the show. Yeah. Yeah, he was great. Yeah. He was great. Uh, and then a guy who showed up on Drew Carey's show, and uh, he showed up on uh, Two and a Half Men, I think, uh, as the husband of the ex-wife. Anyway, I shouldn't know all these things. <laughs> I really shouldn't. But, um, yeah, so if, if you've not done a lot of improv, I mean, we did a lot of improv in uh, theater school. Right. And if you've not done a lot of improv, it looks like magic. Like, how on earth do they know what to say that is really funny? Well, the other that's one thing. And the other thing is, you you know, these guys would do shows for, like, hours and hours and hours, and then you get 20 minutes of funny stuff uh, out of that. So it's yeah. not like that's – not, that's not 20 minutes of stuff to do a 20-minute show, I don't think, anyway. But right. um, uh, so, so if you don't have a particular skill or ability, you haven't trained it in yourself, then people who can exercise it, it's a kind of magic. They get really excited by it, and it looks like you're – larger than life. And some people will use the charisma of ability to try and diminish the standards uh, of those, uh, uh, the standards that are expected of them. You know, well, I'm, I'm so creative, how could I possibly expect it to be on time? You know, <laughs> you know what I right. mean? Uh, and um, I think that's turning creativity from a glorious skill into a sort of petty excuse 
uh, and using it to get yourself off the hook of you know behavior that you loftily would not well, accept from other people. But you're creative, right? Well, to, to be honest, I have experience writing songs and playing with my friends in my band and being up on stage and you know doing a wedding and I do have that experience. And to be honest, there were times when it felt magic to me, even though the people in the audience thought I was a magician, it did also felt magic to me while I was doing it. And it had to do with muscle memory. It had to do with, um, just my grasp of the language, the English language and my understanding of rhythm, you know, all the components come falling together for me in time and being in the present moment. It also felt like magic to me, but of course, a lot of that had to do with me you know, practicing at home and rehearsing with my friends as well. But, but I think maybe I get caught up in my own magic to a certain extent. And then I start to think, well, it, I guess it's magical thinking. I start to think, well, well, maybe those parts of me that existed before I was born and that will continue after I'm born have a consciousness. That is no, to say, no, you know, no, like no, maybe... no, this, no, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I think, I, I think we might be zeroing in here, Morgan. Yeah. Look, I understand the magic, you know, I'm, stand here in this white ping pong ball studio. And, and somehow sometimes <laughs> I think I come up with some quasi Shakespearean speeches, sometimes mm -hmm. largely off the cuff. Yeah. It feels amazing. It feels amazing. It, it, it is a incredible. It's like climbing a mountain that you're building with your mind. <laughs> it's amazing live, to watch you with do no that net too. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's amazing to watch you do that. <laughs> Well, like I appreciate that, and it's uh, spin off these things that are hilarious. You know, like uh, there was one about the the candy trail to the windowless van of something. It was hilarious, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that stuff that stuff comes together well, and um, sometimes, yeah, I, th I think most times it comes together well. And yeah. but here's the thing: I view the abilities that I have, Morgan. Yes. As a service to the world, not as a service yeah. to me, not as a service to my ego, not as a service to my vanity, not as a service to my sense of being important or my sense of being special or my sense of being great or wonderful or wise. I, I view the abilities that I have as a form of service to the world. I was going to say a form of bondage, but... <laughs> That may take a little bit more explaining than we have time for, so I'll just leave it there and, and move on. But and as I've said, you know, I think with great abilities come great responsibilities. And so the question is, if you have the ability to make magic, yeah. how does it serve the world rather than you? Yes, I have thought about that as well. I've thought about Education, you know, it, it's a way that you can educate kids uh, through magic, through performance, through whatever kind of creativity you have, like teaching my daughter to draw or teaching her things about music. Um, I think it works really well with parenting. Uh, it's also, I've, I've experienced it as a, a good way to kind of bring people together, you know, like playing music with the band at a party and it brings everybody together, you know, all the friends, all the people you work with family. And so I've experienced it at that level, but not really much beyond that level. 
Right. So it's it's good entertainment, and I'm not saying that's bad. That I love good entertainment. That's great. But it's good entertainment. But I, I think, I believe, that what the world needs now with 6,000 channels and Netflix and Flickster and Hulu and Lord knows what. Right. What what the world needs now is not more good entertainment, but more morally courageous people. Because right. what you're doing is something experienced as pleasurable by other people. I think what the world needs are conversations, insights, thoughts, arguments, speeches, perspectives that are not comfortable for yes. people. I know certainly that for myself, when I come across an idea that I recoil from, I have to grip my teeth and say, okay, well, I'm going to try and understand this and I'm going to try and understand what value I can find in this uh, argument, this idea, this approach, even though it may rail against my historical sensibilities and it may shock me to my <laughs> Victorian core at times, uh, mm -hmm. I am willing to to uh, to explore and, and to share uh, ideas and uh, arguments that uh, were uncomfortable for me, but which I think are important for people to know. And if you're about creating that sort of connection with people, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's like you can't do it or it's bad or anything like that. But mm -hmm. that's not controversial. And right now, exactly. I think that the world needs a little bit more shock and controversy because we have become enormously complacent as a culture by god we just think we'd have all the answers in the known universe we think we've got it all figured out this ism is good that ism is bad is bad these people are right those people are wrong everybody who says this is great everybody who says that is really bad and uh it's you know i mean the arrogance is is, is shocking in our culture this is an arrogance that was never matched by the priesthood. And the priesthood had contradictory statements within the Bible. The priesthood had the translation difficulties. The priesthood had humility kneeling their tiny consciousnesses before the infinite mind of God. Yeah. Now, okay, Pope accepted, right? But, but in general, the priesthood <laughs> had a fair amount of intellectual humility, which I've been reading about quite a bit lately for the conversation I had with Dr. Duke Pastor, which is, I think, coming out in the next day or two, which you should really watch. Okay. Um, and, um, but the amount of arrogance that we have in the world now, this yeah, I'm is being racist. Hang on, hang on. This, they say, Sorry. this is racist, this is sexist, this is homophobic, this is misogynistic, this is evil, this whole movement, this whole group. Trump is a racist, this alt-right is... Just coughing up all of these vomity hairballs of certainty with no doubt, no doubt. Listen, there are ideologies that I consider enormously immoral. Yes. Communism is one. Yes. However, I'm not going to say all communists are evil. I want to try and understand what is motivating them, what is driving them, where they're coming from, what their goals are. Because they're sure as hell not all evil, that some of them have the very best intentions that can be imagined. Right. And they have bad information, or they have not heard alternate arguments, or this is how they were raised, or whatever. And right. so this, this, this certainty that we have, and by that I generally mean the mainstream media, and the certainty, you know, that there's the culture clash these days has been characterized as a war between the article and the comment section. 
because the articles mm-hmm. generally say this, 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 and this. These are all facts. This is what's going on. This is the reality. Boom, boom, boom. Trump said Mexicans do this and right all. It's a fact, certainty. And then in the comments, people are saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, wait, hang on, hang on. <laughs> what about this? Right. What about this? What about this? There's this perspective. There's this perspective. This fact is incorrect. This was too broad a sweeping generalization. This is reasoning after the effect. This is an ad hominem. This is whatever, right? And so the people who are putting forth their certainties are doing so with the ultimate arrogance of ideology. Right. And the people who are pushing back, and this is free market versus central planning. Central planners are full of uh, people who have what I believe to be truly mental levels of certainty. Well, I know how healthcare should be organized. I know how much people should pay for this. I know how it should all be funded. I know where should it all be. I should know what which doctor should be available to who. I just know all of this. It should never right. be pulled from the marketplace when it can be pushed from my genius. And the free market approach is saying, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how healthcare should be organized. I, I know that we shouldn't use force to organize it. But the free market, the voluntarism, the non-aggression principle are all expressions of fundamental humility. I don't know what's right. best for you. I mean, how often do you hear me tell people what to do in this show? Forget it. Forget it. Won't do it. Mm-hmm. Won't do it. Won't do it. Would have no value even if I was tempted. That ring has no <laughs> no draw for me. That ring is a noose. And so the question is, I think, can you create the magic of puncturing the mad vanity of the modern world? That is the great right. magic And I have this, I see this, you know, I'll come up with an argument or come up with a perspective or even invite someone on the show, even if I don't agree with them, good Lord, it's important information to have. And people are like, oh, what happened? I'm shocked. Steph used to be this, now he's this, it's so terrible. Mm -hmm. But where's the argument? Where are the facts? Being shocked is not an argument, right? Hello, leftists. (laughs) Being shocked and appalled. is not an argument. Being shocked and appalled is a confession of both vanity and impotence. Okay. Vanity and impotence. Because if you find some idea that is shocking and appalling to you, and I'm not talking about, I don't know, let's <laughs> let's let's fry up kittens for a cannibalistic orgy. I mean, you know, like ideas that are out there that have some intelligent people propagating them with some reason and evidence behind them. <laughs> and if you're shocked and appalled, that means that you don't have a counter argument, because if you did... You just say, well, here's where this is false, and here's the fact, 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 right? And right. it also means that you're, you're vain because you wish to reject the idea in the absence of having a counter-argument, which means that you just wish to retain your existing ideology, though you have nothing to push back against the new idea, no way of disproving it. Well, it yeah. means that you have the vanity of wanting to be certain and the arrogance of rejecting ideas that you cannot formulate an argument against. And I think that the world needs, and this is what's the great genius of free speech. Free speech is uh, let's 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 all the bad ideas out into the sunlight. Let's let everyone say all of their bad ideas, all their terrible ideas, so that they can be evaluated and repudiated in the public sphere rather than driving them underground where they can't be directly challenged. And the magic that you are capable of creating, I think, is wonderful. But I'm not sure... It's number one on the needs of the world at the moment. 
Exactly. I feel the same way. Uh, I haven't done a lot of music lately. I'm trained as an architectural designer. My background's in architecture as well. And I have a master's of architecture. But it, it sometimes feels like, you know, either, you know, in the United States, there's this attitude where you have your profession, you have your work, and that's so you can get money. And then you have your hobby, and that's so you can feel good about yourself. And it's, it, but, but it's not about changing perception. It's not about shocking people or moving the culture forward as much as it is just about self-soothing. I mean, I think Americans are, you, people in the United States, when I say Americans, I'm focusing on the United States. I, I think that our religion is individualism. I don't, I think, you know, we have a, we have a true separation of church and state, but then everybody's so obsessed with being, with being a creative individual or being a productive individual or being right, just like you said. So I guess, what can I do to get beyond that? I don't know that uh, America is very individualistic these days. It seems there's a lot of group and identity politics and people are being victimized as groups and judged as groups. And, you know, all people on the alt-right say this and, uh, you know, there's all the women are this and all the you know minorities do that. And I, I think that there's a lot of collectivism in the U.S. at the moment, but that's perhaps a uh, a topic for another time. But, um, you know, find find an idea that startles you, explore it, find out if there's validity to it, and if there is, it doesn't have to be perfect, then communicate it. You know, one of the things that I found very surprising, I mean, I could do four hours on these topics and, and more, but just to pick one off the top of my head, um, Morgan, one of the things that I found really surprising yeah. was the degree to which uh, childhood trauma uh, seems to have uh, an effect on wartime, on, on war. And it was first mentioned to me by someone and I thought, oh, come on, it's a, that's a stretch, right? But, you know, I try to be, I try to have that kind of curiosity and integrity. It doesn't, hey, let's have the flat earth people, you know, like, let's, let's, okay, let's, let's hear it. I'm, uh, I'm happy to give a platform. I'm, you know, I'll have debates with people I disagree with. I'll have people on the show I disagree with. And I will try to figure out what they have that is of value to offer and where the limitations are and all of that. And so, yeah, I, be I became very interested in that. And and a guy who was doing a lot of work on that was Lloyd DeMoss. And we had him on the show a couple of times. I read his um, The Origins of War and Child Abuse as an audiobook because I was going to read it anyway. And, and he kindly gave me permission to do it. And um, I thought I might as yeah. well read it with the care and attention of this and give it in a reproducible format. Me reading it is great, but me reading it in a way that tens or hundreds of thousands of people can download and listen to it now, is everything oh, in that I, book I correct? I don't... Oh, sorry, let me just finish. Is everything in that book correct? I doubt it. I, I don't know yeah. that anything in any book is correct. Um, but in, everything in, every, in any book is correct. But is it a stimulating and thoughtful examination of a potentially key causality in human conflict? Well, yeah, I think it is. And that idea came yeah. as a real shock to me. And all of that was... Uh, you know the the progress that I've I've had in in my life in in my in this conversation in this show, I think has a lot to do with people kind of get that sense that, well, he's not saying the same thing over and over again. He's learning and growing. He's exploring new avenues of of causality, and um, there is a kind of 
there's a humility in that. I mean, if I was still saying everything that I said 10 years ago, it would mean that my knowledge was perfect 10 years ago. I mean, come on. How could that possibly be? <gasps> I am God. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so I think people get that. So you just find some idea that shocks you, explore it. If you find it has validity, use it to help other people out of their complacency. Okay. So it has to shock me too, because <laughs> if it doesn't shock me, then it means I'm already comfortable with it, right? Well, and it means then if you're already comfortable with it, it probably means that the people around you are already comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a lot. There are people who love when I challenge them with new information or new ideas, and there are other people who are uncomfortable with it. And it is for right. the people who are uncomfortable with it that I do it, because that's how the culture stays alive. That's how the culture grows. That's how philosophy grows. Is having people confront challenging ideas, find the weakness or find the strength, but not recoil. Uh, and that is that is the great challenge. Uh, and, mm -hmm. um, most likely if it doesn't shock you and you've had these same friends around for 20 years who you're going to chat about it with, probably not going to shock them. But if it shocks you, it's probably worth exploring. And I think you'll get great growth and that's where you'll need your courage because if it shocks you, it may shock other people. And that's how, you know, you're going to need courage to get it across because it's not going to create that instant communal magic that, uh, uh you know, um, free bird does. <laughs> Right. Okay. Excellent. Let me know how it goes and uh, really appreciate you calling in. It was a very, very interesting conversation. And I, I do like it when I get to chat about the roots of what I do. So I hope I didn't totally hijack things for that. But I really no, appreciate it. Okay. Yeah. I, I listened to that whole book, too, the one that you read, The Origins of uh, Child Abuse. War, Child War. Abuse, yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. It's quite something. Yeah, and people can get that from freedomainradio.com slash free. So uh, thanks, everyone, for a great and exciting and wonderful show. Uh, oh, look at that. Pinch punch the last day of the month. Uh, and so if you would like to go, you know, listen to this, please go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show, to give us the cheddar we so need to keep ourselves uh, in uh, hair oil. And uh, so it's freedomainradio.com slash donate. You can, of course, follow me on Twitter at Stefan Mullen. You can go to fdrurl.com slash Amazon to use our affiliate link, fdrpodcasts.com, to show all of the magical podcasts to everyone you can find. And last but not least, it's, of course, I'm sure you know, youtube.com slash freedomainradio. Let's get ourselves up to half a million uh, subscribers. Why not? The sky's the limit. Thanks, everyone, so much for watching and for listening. And most importantly, at the moment, for donating. Stefan Molyneux for Freedom Radio. We'll talk to you soon.